You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Welcome back everyone. Uh, I'm proud to be here now to chair our final panel of the day. Uh, I'm Daniel Purcell. I am uh, David Fitzpatrick's latest and last, I believe, uh, PhD uh, candidate. So uh, let me be the, the final uh, the final record on this teaching. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, so our first speaker today is Professor Linda Connolly. Uh, Professor Linda Connolly is director of the New University Social Sciences Institute. She previously lectured in University College Cork. She is a professor of sociology and has published a monograph on the Irish women's movement from revolution to devolution. In September 2017, she organized a conference in the Royal Irish Academy on Women and the Irish Revolution, 1917 to 1923, Feminism, Violence, and Nationalism. And her paper today is titled Women, Violence, and the Irish Revolution, 1970 to 1923, a marginal or central issue. Okay, um, thank you very much. Uh, I first want to thank Padula for inviting me to speak. Um, Padula herself isn't speaking, I notice, so, but I do follow your work uh, very closely on women in war, um, and I know you are one of uh, Professor Fitzpatrick's former students as well, so, um, so I just want to mention your work as well. Um, I'm clearly uh, the outlier at this event. Um, I'm not a graduate of Trinity or a former student um, of Professor David Fitzpatrick, but I'm nonetheless uh, honoured uh, to be here today. Um, I don't normally do this, but um, I used to do this in teaching. I teach a lot on sort of intimate partner violence and rape crisis issues in the 1970s. And I often say to students, you know, there's, there's a trigger warning. But actually, some of my material is quite difficult today. Um, so I just want to say that I am looking at issues around head shortening, but also questions around sex, sexual assault and violence. Um, it's a bit like that trigger warning you hear on the TV programs for children, etc. Um, but just to say that. So I'm going to start with just... Uh, uh, a short 16-second uh, clip of A Silent Woman, which will uh, frame the narrative. Uh, it's silent, uh, and watch, uh, in which I want to build my paper. And I don't know if you can see it very well, um, but this silent uh, newsreel uh, is from Limerick in 1920. And just to quote from the website, the Irish Film Archive website, uh, it shows a side... Uh, it's very quick, I can play it again if you want. Um, it shows a side of Irish history that is rarely uh, spoken about. And here we see Mae Connolly, uh, who's been beaten and had her hair shorn uh, by, uh, for the crime of speaking to the black and tans. Um, as we know, this method of terrorising and intimidating was used uh, both by IRA and Crown forces as a way of, um, to, to control and to punish. There she is again. Um, I also just want to show very quickly, we have here a well-known scene, we do, yes, uh, from The Wind That Shakes the Barley uh, film, which most of you uh, will be familiar with as well, of um, a forced hair shortening. So um, just, I suppose, to set uh, a bit of context, I suppose my paper is a little bit niche, but on the other hand, um, I think it speaks to a lot of the themes and topics that we've been talking about um, today already, and it fits very much within that framework, I suppose, of the dynamics um, of violence and getting into, I think, what you were talking about, 
and wherever you are earlier, um, about you know when we look closely at violence, what do we do about it, or what do we do with it? Um, so I'm going to do a couple of things. I want to contextualise better how we're discussing hair. Um, hair is actually a fascinating uh, subject in its own right, but the shortening of hair um, and its symbolic and sexual um, uh, uses has a long history and a long literature. So I think it's important for Irish historians maybe to not just look at hair as military strategy with a confined arena, but to broaden out both the time frame and the literature to explain these things. And the second part will look at um, issues around rape and sexual assault. And I'm going to draw quite a bit on Joanna Burke's uh, magisterial text uh, on rape from 1860 to the present. Um, Okay, so just to get into the paper. The impulse to airbrush, minimise and suppress women's history is painfully evident when we examine some of the evidence into the impact of violence against women in the period up to the end of the Irish Civil War. I think the fact that 87% of professors of history in Ireland are men hasn't really helped, um, to be honest. Um, And I think that's a shocking statistic uh, that we actually uh, should be discussing and clearly need to do something about. It's perhaps another revolution that has barely uh, begun. Anthropologists, um, sorry, uh, Peter Burke in History of Social Theory states, anthropologists became aware of the problem of collective amnesia in investigating oral traditions. While historians encountered in the course of studying events such as the Holocaust or civil wars of the 20th century in Finland, Ireland, Russia, Spain, and elsewhere. The problem is not a loss of memory at the individual level, but the disappearance from public discourse of certain events. These events are, in a sense, uh, repressed, not necessarily because they were traumatic, though many of them were, but because it has become politically inconvenient to refer to them. In the period 1917 to 1923, broadly understood, uh, the impact of violence on women has been given only some very preliminary attention by historical scholars. One of the earliest pieces was by my fellow historical sociologist, uh, Professor Louise Ryan, which was written over 20 years ago. Um, She wrote a path-breaking article at the time in Feminist Review, I'm not sure how many historians read uh, the journal Feminist Review, that might be part of the problem, but it was largely ignored at the time, um, entitled Drunken Tans. Uh, But more recently, there has been a bit of renewed interest um, on this topic. Um, Scholars like Lindsay Erner Byrne, uh, Julie Eichenberg, Anne Matthews, Marie Coleman, and others have all started to scrutinise this issue again to varying degrees, no doubt to do with the commemoration um, phase that we find ourselves in and the approach of uh, the Civil War commemoration. Some work has also been done on feminist activists' attempts to highlight the problem of what we now call sexual crime uh, in this period, including by, again, Margaret Ward and also Louise Ryan, um, who've looked at, for instance, Margaret Duggan's court reports in the Irish Citizen, which a bit like um, there was a series in the Irish Times in recent years, literally there were reports on you know what was happening in the courts. Many of those reports were about um, cases of incest, um, sexual assault, um, often of um, often a very class-based um, perspective, and um, uh, servant girls, domestic servants, um, etc. So, however, um, I think. 
to cut straight into it, several questions arise in this domain at the current conjuncture in Centennial, Ireland. So there are three things I think I want to challenge. And um, I suppose, as I said at the start, contextualise or broaden out into a much bigger discussion than we've been having thus far. So the first contention or question is, did women escape the worst of the brutalities of war between um, uh, uh, 1919 to 21 in particular? But of course you could broaden that out over a much longer period. Um, Marie Coleman and others have suggested, quite rightly and quite cautiously, um, that um, there isn't enough quantifiable evidence of, for instance, in particular sexual assault and rape. We've got a lot of evidence of hair showing, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, however, I'm going to look at how, I suppose, much of the new scholarship is focusing on what we might call a militaristic interpretation, and is not really looking at the other kinds um, of explanations as to why these kinds of assaults are actually not even quantifiable uh, in the first place. Um, I would say that the assertion um, that has crept in to newspaper articles, different kinds of discourses, that women's um, uh, treatment was lenient, it wasn't lethal, um, is um, incorrect at best. Um, and I think it hasn't ad been adequately proven yet. It's based on conjecture and comparison to other countries where there is better evidence preserved and different circumstances at work. Moreover, and this is what I'm going to look at a little bit today, far more personal testimonies of women need to be considered alongside the militaristic explanations for why certain kinds of atrocities or crimes occur against women. Second, I think we need to ask how is sexual violence being defined in Irish revolutionary studies. There's little conceptual clarification on this. And there's little or no reference to other kinds of literature, such as feminist analysis of the relationship between sex and war, which is evident in many publications. It's also evident in the more recent literature you know, on atrocities in Bosnia, etc., where you have very interesting, I suppose, theoretical or conceptual explanations for this kind of behaviour uh, in moments of war conflict. I'm not suggesting we compare Ireland to Bosnia, don't get me wrong, but we're not looking at that literature for the kinds of explanations that may or may not uh, be useful. And again, as I say, uh, said earlier, Joanna Burke's text comes to mind as an exception uh, in this regard. Um, likewise, I would say, and again, there are uh, better experts than me on this topic in the room, um, there's little reference to comparative studies, or transnational studies, as we were talking about earlier, um, of other more smaller scale conflicts or civil wars, such as the Spanish Civil War or the Greek Civil War, where very interesting parallels can potentially be drawn with what Irish women experienced in the period of revolution. Um, again, I can give you some examples. Uh, the excellent work of Catherine Stefatis on political persecution and gender violence in the Greek Civil War uh, is just one example of that. So, um, so I want to argue, therefore, for a, a deeper and expanded scholarship on the policing of, of women's bodies, on sexual violence and harassment of women in the Irish Revolution. In particular, I will criticise the tendency to isolate out certain gendered behaviours as lenient, such as hair shortening, as if it was somehow separate, a kind of separate act 
that was lenient from the other kinds um, of violence that we know were uh, perpetuated at this time. And I want to link them to an overall spectrum of what we might call uh, gender-based violence. Women were labelled, humiliated, disciplined and stigmatised in various ways throughout this period through the symbolic realm of their bodies and sexuality. Okay, so very quickly, some remarks about hair, as I said. Um, so hair, very interesting um, topic. Um, we all have a relationship with um, hair. Um, so what is the significance of it in history and in conflict? So um, hair shearing, as we know, was a, a serious assault and it was rife in this period in Ireland. And again, I just have some examples of this. Um, so again, here we have, there's many examples in the witness statements, um, in the newspapers, etc. So here we have a reference to the bobbing of uh, persistent offenders. Um, we're back to Cork again. Young girls from Cork going out to Balancholic, Shakur, uh, to meet the British soldiers. Um, so they were bobbed. Um, to clearly donate her way of life. I haven't figured out yet if, if the way of life was actually prostitution or not, or just a general commentary on girls who, who hung out or wanted to hang out uh, with soldiers, basically. Um, so, uh, although hair is a physiological phenomenon, it's also a social one. Uh, in many cultures, hair plays an important role in the development of social uh, constructs about the body. Moreover, past uses of hair as a means of social control and dehumanisation have influenced the meaning of what we call hair-taking by the state. So I think the taking of hair in itself is a very interesting way um, of looking at this symbolically, never mind the impact and the injury that often accompanied um, hair shortening. So, um, again, some cultures... Um, link hair as an important symbol of sexuality. Um, uh, psychoanalytic examinations of the meaning of hair in Western mythology and folk literature demonstrate that long-haired women often symbolise women as kind of um, phallic monsters, as the Medusa, uh, that women's long tresses represent the pubic region, and that the cutting of hair is used to symbolise castration, loss of mother, and reparation. The importance and power of hair as a sexual symbol is, is evident um, across many cultures. I uh, don't have time to go into these today. Uh, hair often serves as a symbol of women's virgin state and of her honour. Um, as I said, it's clear that enforced cutting of hair in the dehumanisation of women occurred on both sides of the conflict in Ireland, Crown Forces and IRA. So how can we interpret this practice? in what was an otherwise deeply divided uh, conflict and society. Why did this form of assault on women transpose and transgress the political divide and indeed other state divides across Europe? Is it a form of highly sexualised violence or, as someone has said, sexual assault? Um, as I said, psychoanalytic, anthropologists, feminist scholars as a whole argued this. If so, why are historians cruelly comparing it to murders and kidnaps of rebellious men, rather than studying the specificity of this form of violence as a gendered and sexualised, historically embedded practice? Hair cutting, as we know, was widespread in various conflicts in Europe, 
Again, I just want to briefly mention this. We're all familiar that at the end of World War II, the 20,000 uh, French people accused of collaboration with Germany and, and endured a particularly humiliating act of revenge. Their heads were shaved in public. Nearly all those public, uh, punished were women. Um, the French were not alone in shaving the heads of women who slept with the enemy. Uh, um, Bertolt Brecht, in his poem entitled Ballad, Ballad of Marie Sanders, the Jews' whore, uh, wrote that Marie Sanders, a woman from Nuremberg, was driven through the town in her slip, round her neck a sign, her hair all shaven. Her crime was to have slept with a Jew who, ironically, had he been Hasidic, might have insisted upon shaving her head after marriage. So anyway, so what has any of this got to do with Irish history? Intimidation is, as we have heard amply in the earlier sessions, a universal reality during warfare. The Irish Revolution was no different. We might talk about the scale relative to other parts of Europe, um, but the universal reality of this um, is um, apparent. Arson, kidnapping and fake executions were all employed alongside hijackings and murder. Men were presumed the main targets of executions and kidnappings, whereas women um, became the targets for head shaving, beatings and rape, with head shavings being by far the most common punishment. Newspaper reports suggest that in most instances the attack took place at night, as was the case for Julia Goulin, for instance, who was actually not just pulled by the hair, but was actually hung uh, by the hair and shaved. So again, there's a tendency, you know, in some of the literature to show that this is kind of, you were taken out of the street, your head was shaved, and everybody walked away. As I said, this is part of, I suppose, is a, more of a continuum of different forms of violence. Um, and again, other kinds of verbal and physical assault uh, was associated with this. Reports from the Irish Times, again, detail numerous occasions when Irish rebels were the ones meeting out this punishment. Eileen Barker was one such victim, having had her head shaved at good point by members of the IRA, for allowing British troops to stay in her hotel. So, again, I mean, there are so many examples of this. I'm just going to put a couple, one or two off that I, I think are quite instructive. I think this one is a little bit um, evocative uh, in a way. So, um, this is about um, a girl, um, a young girl, um, the witness is Michael Higgins in Galway, and the girl had written to an RIC man giving him information about volunteer activities, and the letter was captured in a raid on the mills. So the girl admitted writing the letter. Brigadier Fogarty gave them a lecture on the gravity of offence and said she was being treated leniently and having her hair cut off. There was a scene. The girl was crying, and her people were sprinting holy water on her and on us. She was a very beautiful girl before her hair was sheared, and I pitied her, although I, I knew I should not in the circumstances. Again, there's countless, um, I think that the, the holy water kind of gives it a sort of a evocative um, tone. Okay. So, moving along then, um, the second thing I want to focus on um, is then the more thorny question of whether or not the Irish Revolution was a low-rape uh, conflict. And I know there's been quite a bit of discussion about this to date. So, however, I have a very particular view, which I'll just jump into. So, so what about rape and, and what we might call um, sexual assault? 
Um, in my opinion, an Irish exceptionalism interpretation of the revolution apparently exists um, when it comes to these issues. It suggests there was very little rape in 1917 to 23 compared to large-scale wars in other parts of Europe. But I would suggest that the limitation of sources available um, to document the detail of such crimes suggests that actually we don't know yet um, if this is the case. For a number of reasons. First of all, the nature of um, this kind of uh, crime, as I said, as we call it today, uh, rape is always underreported, <coughs> even today. In terms of the context of the times, the shame of being a fallen woman or a single mother <coughs> took pre precedence over calling out uh, an act of this nature, or what, again, as I said, we might say today, seeking justice and accountability <coughs> for the crime in question. More, moreover, I think the wrong points of comparison are being used. It's pointless to compare mass world wars with conflicts in Ireland. It's a rather small island, after all, geographically, never mind the nature and scale of the conflict. So I think context is therefore extremely important, but not in order to minimise at the same time what may have happened in this period. In agreement with Joanna Burke, rape and sexual abuse are common, even if we do not actually know how many women and men are raped every year. Sexual assault eludes statistical notation. It is simply not the that the statistics are collected in a consistent or a reliable manner. Um, she says they cannot exist. Okay. So, for instance, the term rapist only came into common usage around 1883. Um, okay. So, um, just in the final few minutes, I just want to uh, refer to um, the kinds of evidence that does exist. So again, you'll see lots of kind of witness statements where they refer to uh, rapes that they have heard about. I'm going to fly through this. Um, but again, um, so... That's my page now. I'm going too fast. Um, but as Burke puts out, there is no crime more difficult to prove than rape and no injured party more distrusted than the rape victim. Now, I think Gemma Clark, who's here, um, is cited in Marie Coleman's uh, a recent chapter in this, um, uh, which, which states that Louise Ryan, for instance, only referred to a handful of cases in her very early article. Um, but I think that appears um, premature when we take all this into account. Calling out rape is a very rare occurrence, and this cannot be uh, confidently, confidently cre uh, conflated with rape being rare. The kinds of sources that exist outside of the military archives are very interesting. I want to draw your attention to a particular paper by Lindsay Arner Byrne in the Journal of Sexualities. And she came across this um, letter from who she calls Mary M. And as you can see, this is a woman, she was in her 40s, living with her elderly uncle and aunt. And um, so... Effectively, she said, when I there was a, a, a raid of the kind we were talking about earlier. She said, when I strove to save my aunt from being dragged from her bed, and they were furious when they did not get money, one brute satisfied his duty passion on me. I was then in a dangerous state of health, and through his conduct, I became pregnant. Oh God, could any pen describe what I have gone through? Now that was hidden in um, a Catholic orphanage archive. She had a baby as a consequence, and had been paying 
for the upkeep of the child in an orphanage. You won't find that kind of source in a regular um, military archive. I think many of the sources that might give us more evidence of this crime might be hidden in some of the institutional archives, which I'll finish with now in two seconds. Again, some of you will be familiar with the case of Nora Healy um, from the Arahili Papers. Again, uh, was raped at night in her home. She was pregnant at the time. She went to report. It was a British um, soldier in this case. She went to report to the barracks the next day, saw her perpetrator, and she was advised, never mind, don't say, don't say anything now. So, so there are lots of examples of this. Um, we referred to Kate Maher earlier, a particularly horrific case. And the final one, um, I suppose I just want to mention um, the whole question of gang rape. And again, these are very um, difficult questions, but there are some evidence of them. And I suppose what they show is, again, this was um, a case in, 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 in Mayo, near Ballina, and um, it crops up in a pension file. Um, so the Free State Army, armed and masked, entered the house shortly after midnight. First, they terrorised all in the house with guns and threats. They dragged Margaret from her bed naked, brought her a distance from the house, tied her hands, threatened to shoot her, and raped her in succession. Now, again, this is quite a corroborated one. There are doctor's notes. Um, how I know it's corroborated as well is that she ended up uh, in Castlebar um, in an asylum. Um, she had a nervous breakdown. I've come across quite a few nervous breakdowns since, um, in, in some of the stuff I've looked at where it's not clear whether or not it was sexual violence or um, just, uh, I suppose, general kind of trauma. Okay. Final thing I want to mention is just there's a lot of evidence where, you know, it's a little bit ambiguous as to, to what's going on. So you have these violent attacks um, but again, there's intimations. You've talked about this before. You know, always women pulled in their nightdress. The nightdress is pulled. You know, there's definitely, um, because they happen at night. Um, but this woman, again, she hasn't blocked capitals. Um, it's a very brutal um, um, episode. Um, so the mother is quite badly injured. It's a very rough uh, raid. And the women are treated very badly. Um, it's in Bandon. Um, and she says, the officer then told me to go upstairs and get my clothes on as I was under arrest. I did this and was followed by two soldiers. And for that reason, I came downstairs again without changing my clothes. So again, I'm not speculating, but I'm just pointing out that there's a lot of kind of, um, I suppose, evidence in the archives that also shows this general, I suppose, um, threat um, or sense of threat um, is very uh, profound. Okay, so conclude. Um, in a striking metaphor stated by Ardner in 1975, um, women have been described as a muted group in history, only able in many times and places to express their ideas through the dominant language of males. Um, is this still the case, um, I want to ask? Are women still a muted group in Irish history? Particularly when we look at um, the suppression of gender-based violence, both in the period in question and in more uh, recent decades. Um, difficult questions demand difficult histories, and the decade of commemorations in the plural should present an opportunity for a new debate about a fundamental reimagination of what Irish history is, um, is and could be. Um, a headline arising from 
a rather public spat between Dermot Fairshire and uh, John Regan in 2015 in the Irish Times states, has the title, Picking a Fight About the Rights and Wrongs of Our History. I always get very suspicious when I see our history. So I immediately check it, are they including women in that definition? Um, and shock, uh, horror, surprise, they weren't. Um, <laughs> so who will be the first to pick a fight about the rights and wrongs of our checkered and troubled history as women in Ireland? Uh, women, feminist scholarship, women's history was ignored both in Reagan's text and obviously in Farage's review because he was reviewing the text. Uh, you would think that the only development since the 1980s in Irish historiography was the nationalist and revisionist debate about the Troubles. Um, but of course there was another absolutely massive development in the 1980s which was the growth of women's history and feminist critique um, of the uh, rather testosterone-fueled nature um, of some of those debates. Part of the fight that has not been picked relates to the legacy of transgressive violence as it applies to women's lives in the period 1917 to 23, and indeed the harsh reality and continuity of such crimes in contemporary societies, as Joanna Burke has argued. The feminist movement of the 70s did much to um, advance our knowledge of gender-based violence um, and the kinds of arguments I've been using here today, but of course like in the past, in the 1970s, it was also claimed that this wasn't really a big issue in Ireland. It didn't really exist. And of course, we now know um, quite the opposite. Okay, so a final thought. Uh, just three conclusions for, I suppose, we're really talking about an unfinished revolution, in my opinion, when we look at these kinds of issues, and as to see where we might um, go from here. Well, only yesterday, part of the internet, um, we see a further 600 files on women uh, released. So I'm um, sorry, I didn't have time to read them all uh, between yesterday and, and the paper today. Um, but I want to make three conclusions. Because as we know, um, in the period um, after the state was founded in the 1920s, um, what happened devastated women in so many ways. A lot of that focus has been on kind of state behaviour, the Juries Act, censorship of publications, um, all of these kinds of laws, I suppose, employment laws that restricted women's rights. Um, Anti-national scholars have often, often used the argument that the women were used, if you like, in the revolutionary period to uphold a kind of particular ideology. Um, a bit like the earlier papers, I'm doing a, a dual a dual turn here. I think women were used to some extent, but at the same time, they also exercised enormous, enormous political agency in the revolution in significant numbers. So what is apparent is that when the new state was established, something went terribly wrong, and I will finish on this note. So first of all, with the, the pensions collection, I think there's a need for more stories in women's own voice before we can make the kind of firm conclusions that have been proposed uh, around the incidents of violence against women in the revolution. We have a lot more work to do. Secondly, I am led to believe, based on what I've looked, on, looked at so far, is that there is a, an unexplored link, I think, between violence, women, institutionalisation and mental health in the post-independence period. And I think the benefit of the pension files in particular is that you can see where some of the women ended up, um, you know, 10, or 10 years or so later. Um, three of the cases I looked at 
There's a Molly O'Shea in Kerry. She sounds like an absolutely vibrant, coming along activist, doing everything we read, you know, that these women were doing, dangerous endeavours at night, um, supporting wounded men, all the rest. Um, had a very radical uh, nervous breakdown and was institutionalised for her life. It's a really sad uh, example. Um, Margaret, who I mentioned in the west of Ireland, um, also ended up, as I said, in Castle Bar for life. And the basis of the pension claim is from her mother on the basis of what happened to her after that particular uh, assault that I outlined. And finally, um, one of the ones from yesterday, so I have to cite uh, Niall Murray, the examiner, to this. Um, he, he refers to Adelia Begley in Ennis, um, who suffered a nervous breakdown after attending wounded men while making explosives, explosives sorry, in 1919, and which later saw in the care of, God forbid, the Sisters of Charity. Um, let's not go there. Um, and uh, the Reverend Mother, Sister Pascaline, wonderful name, um, is quoted in the file, and she said, Miss Begley had no estate. In fact, she was destitute. She fought bravely for her country, but when she became helpless, no one wanted her, not even her relations. So to conclude, just to leave you with this thought, I don't know the answer to this yet, so it's just a thought. Um, did Irish society lock away and institutionalise the trauma of the revolution suffered by some of these women I'm looking at um, from the 1920s on? Is this where the ultimate sources on the hidden history of women in the revolution lie? Uh, was this lethal for women or lenient punishment? Um, uh, I think not, basically. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Eve Morrison. Uh, Eve studied history at Trinity College Dublin, receiving her BA in 2003. She continued to study from modern Irish history as an IRC postgraduate scholar in Trinity and was awarded a PhD in 2011. Uh, the subject of her doctoral studies was the Bureau of Military Histories and her postdoctoral research focused on the Ernie O'Malley notebook interviews. She was an IRC postdoc fellow in ECD from 2013 to 2015, working on the O'Malley notebooks, and she is also writing a book based on her doctoral work for Liverpool University Press. And the title of the talk is Context, Mentality and Subjective Historians and Retrospective Personal Accounts of the Irish Revolution. Okay, hello everyone. Um, firstly, I suppose I'll, th I'll begin like everybody else begins with by thanking the organisers for, for inviting me. Uh, I, I, I realise it's kind of a, a pretentious title of, the, of this talk, um, but, but nonetheless, hope, hopefully you'll get uh, a sense of it. What I'm going to talk about today is the importance of context and contextualisation, and how context influences personal accounts, and also how context influences the historians who write about them. Um, as as, in, as, as um, Dr. Purcell said, uh, I specialize in, in legacy interviews with, with separatist nationalist uh, veterans. Um, now, I, I started my PhD under Dave Fitzpatrick in 2003. I finished in 2011. I was probably the last of the eternal PhD students. Only, only Frank Rin, I think, went longer than me uh, in terms of doing it. And I suppose this is as good a time as any. Now, I had my reasons for taking that long, but it's as good a time as any to thank David Fitzpatrick for marching me over the line in the end um, and, and, and finishing. Um, 
Now, and I suppose this is a, in, in 2011 when I wrote it, uh, there, there's a few things that, that you, you know, the basic tenets of what I said I stand over. I said the methodology of the Bureau was much better uh, than at the time most people realised. I said it was a de Valera project, much more than it was a pro-treaty or a free state project, um, and that the main control for the Bureau of Military History was actually the Military Service Pensions Collection, and that the Bureau, you know, basically can't really be understood without reference to the, the, the military service pensions that you needed to consult the Bureau's administrative record and that although the, the witness statements were, strictly speaking, oral history, you should still really you get a lot of benefit out of approaching them using oral history uh, methodology. Now, I still stand over all of that. However, things have changed so much since... Uh, since then and now, that when I write about the Bureau now, I, I, I tend to approach it in quite a different way. The reason for that is because the context has changed. Um, when I was researching, writing my PhD, I was primarily focused on how unique and important were uh, these personal testimonies. I still believe that. But now I would place much greater emphasis on the pitfalls of using personal testimony in oral history without a sufficient grounding in contemporary primary source records from the time. Uh, now, the, the, the Bureau was released in 2003, and witness statements went online in, in August 2010, now, and now we have the MSPs as well. So actually, it's no longer the case that historians and researchers aren't using retrospective personal testimony enough. It's that they're being used, if you like, too much, too much at face value, and, and generally not being interrogated as much as they should be, uh, and oftentimes not being used and um they're being used without doing that kind of bedrock research, right? Using it into the contemporary record. Um, so, I mean, I spoke recently to a publisher who said that he, that he was constantly rejecting manuscripts now, since 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 the bureau was released, because precisely because they're oftentimes little more than just regurgitated witness statements, right? So this is so it's a problem. So what I thought I'd do today is I'd, 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 I'd use the example of a, of a um, chapter I've just written that, that actually uses them, um, but also shows uh, basically and, and demonstrates why it's important to ground yourself in the contemporary record when you're doing so, and to be aware of the changing political context in which subsequent retrospective accounts are given. Most of what I say will appear in, 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 in this article. Um, it should be out uh, early next next spring, I think. This um, and it's basically this the study of the experience and the subsequent memorializing of the occupation of the Hammam Hotel on O'Connell Street by anti-treaty forces under Cattlebrewer, uh, the first week of the Civil War, 29th of June to, to the 5th of July, 1922. Um, now the the IRA had taken over several buildings on on uh, O'Connell Street, was Sackville Street then. Um, uh, and by, by the 5th of July, most of the buildings were on fire. Um, and the, the last section was, was in the Hammam with Brewer. He ordered everybody to surrender. They left, but then famous, famously himself charged down Thomas's Lane towards Free State uh, troops, and he was fatally wounded in the thigh, and he died two days later. Now, my chapter looks particularly at uh, the experience of one of the three women who stayed on to the very end, and that was Kathy Berry. The other two were Muriel McSweeney and Linda Kearns. And so basically what I do is I, is I basically start with the actual incident and the evidence for that, and then trace the portrayal of, of the women and the death of Brewer 
uh, including what the women say themselves, from then up to the 1970s. So I kind of trace and follow the memory. Now, at least 30 women were involved in the initial occupation. They were ordered to leave after a couple of days, uh, and most of the women did leave under protest. Um, but Barry, Kearns, and McSweeney uh, managed to stay through and a small number of men. Uh, and Kearns actually ended up playing quite a, a, an important role. Um, she, she actually, after Brew was shot, she kind of pinched his artery between her, her fingers to stop him bleeding uh, to death in, in the alleyway. Uh, I think I have a picture there of what's left. What was left? Yeah, that was, that the, I mean, that's the Hallam, right? It's, co it's pretty much completely gone. Um, so at the time, and in, in the immediate aftermath of this, the involvement of Barry and McSweeney and Cairns was very well publicised. Um, and in the months that followed, the, the, you know, women were at the forefront of the publicity and the public activity surrounding Brewer's death. Uh, Caitlin Brewer's widow uh, asked that a common imam provide the, the guard of honour, and they led his funeral procession. And in August, Kearns and McSweeney embarked on a fundraising tour in the USA in which they gave accounts of the O'Connell Street fighting. Um, and some of this was published in the Irish world. And the women all made a point of paying tribute to, the, to the, the fact that the women had been there and the work that they'd done. All right? But countering that, attempts to kind of demean or excise women from, from uh, what had happened from that narrative began immediately. All right? And, and, every, and both sides involved in the Civil War were doing it. The, I think it was the Irish Independent Report on the evacuation of the Hamo uh, made a point of kind of belittling the women. Um, and then Skellig's uh, Cal Brew, as I knew him, was published in 1922, didn't, didn't mention them at all. Um, Barry herself wrote, wrote uh, two accounts. The first one was a letter in January 1923, which was in response to her, her fiancé, uh, later husband Jim Maloney, saying in a letter that the women had been more of a hindrance than a help in the fight. Uh, and the second was published uh, in the Irish Press in 1932, around the um, anniversary, 10th anniversary of Brewer's death. Um, and the two accounts could not be more different. Now here's the offending, original offending um, uh, passage uh, in, which, in, in, in this letter. Barry, now Barry uh, met Maloney, he, who was then Lynch's director of communications in, in July 22 in the Glen of in County Tipperary, he'd uh, previously been in the 4th Battalion of the 3rd Tip Brigade. Uh, Barry was sent back to Dublin in, in, in uh, late 1922 to, to reorganise the Irish uh, Republican Prisoners' Defence Fund. Um, and the, the pair became, you know, were, fell madly in love. They, they remained in regular contact. They were basically abusing the secret courier system. The IRA sent each other love letters back and forth. Um, and they were also supposed to burn all their correspondence for security reasons. They didn't do that either. So subsequently, a lot of these original letters are in the captured documents in the, in, in the, military, in the military archives. Uh, and so, and hers, and hers were in UCD. Um, and so basically, they, they, when, when this letter is written, they've just be, become engaged. Um, and her response to this, Right, was really, which really, the first time I read this was several years ago, it, it really knocked me for sense. It was really, really, or knocked me for six, I believe it is. I was really struck uh, by this letter. Um, you know, because, it, it, like, and, and the, the exchanges between them are incredibly rich, right? And I, and I talk more about it in the article, I'm not, I'm only going to say, you know, a little bit about it now. But 
was interesting about it was how conflicted she was. You know, they just got engaged. She was delighted. She was says yes, I'll accept your ring. She was worried that that her his mother didn't like her. You know, and she's always continually desperately afraid that he's going to get shot. But it's also she's clearly furious, just furious at what he said, and the suggestion that women had gotten in the way. And she goes on to give this amazing, defiant account of, of her participation. Um, and, it, and it includes, and it really gives you a very good sense of how women were actually treated at the time. All right? And, 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 um, so, and, and how difficult it was sometimes for, for them to participate. Um, and so basically, like, like De Valera basically picked her, Amy De Valera basically picked her up and chucked her out the door, right, in the first instance. She kind of uh, slinked back in and hid, right, in a corner. Some of the guys saw her, they didn't say anything. Uh, the two other women just stood at the back door all night until somebody came out the next morning and opened it and kind of rushed it and came back in. Um, and then they were, they were allowed to stay. And then, and then they refused to leave until the men left, um, right at the very end. And, and Ernie uh, O'Malley in the singing flame gives a kind of romantic... Uh, description of this moment of defiance where they say that the Easter Rising have given them the right to participate. Um, and so, now according to Barry Brew, eventually relented, although he, he felt very uncomfortable with the situation. She said she had to dodge him all the time because he didn't mind her making tea or Bob Rowe, but, you know, filling sandbags was just completely inappropriate. Um, and she, you know, and she also gives a, a, a description of, of the surrender and of Brewer's death. Um, and so I won't give it, but I won't give a blow-by-blow blow account of that. But at one point she says, "Now you may disapprove of me all you like for refusing to go when I was told, but you mustn't disapprove of the men. And you can ask Jack O'Mara or Ed O'Reilly or Dan Keith if we ended the fight, or kept them from holding out as long as they would otherwise have done. The men were great; they were sports, and they let me do heaps of things." Right? Now, actually, Ernie O'Malley interviewed both O'Reilly and o O'Mara, and O'Reilly actually does remember Barry being there and filling sandbags and helping put out fire and all sorts of other things. Um, and she was, you know, she worked very closely then, from then on with Liam Lynch um, through, you know, throughout the Civil War, uh, as well as, as Oscar Trainer De Valera. And she was so, in later years, she was regularly kind of approached and interviewed by her contemporaries, by Floria Donahue, by Joseph Brennan, Thomas O'Doherty, who's, who is uh, who is the nephew of Al Brewer, who, who wrote a uh, biography of him, and also Ernie O'Malley. Um, but in the later accounts of, of Brewer's death and this incident in the Hammond, the women's presence is very much diminished. On the 10th anniversary in 1932 in the Irish press, uh, they published a commemorative account of Brewer's, what they described as his glorious rush into the jaws of death, right? And Ireland was a very uh, conservative place by then. You know, the window that had been created in the revolutionary period for women to, to assert themselves forcefully into the narrative the way they had, had shut very firmly. And in, in these sorts of narratives of, of, of Republican marchers like Brewer, there's very little space left for them at all. Um, and so, you know, the Hammond women were actually mentioned, um, but they're described as Terence McSweeney's widow and Kevin Barry's sister, right? They're not named. Now, it's interesting. Barry and her sister, Elgin, remained very uncompromising Republicans to the end of their days. 
you know, they refused to join Fianna Fáil, they were kind of public to, they, they campaigned for, for a turned IRA men in 1939-1940. But in the press reports at the time, they're consistently referred to as Kevin Barry's sister, right? So I'm never, it's actually not always clear which sister is being referred to, right? Because apparently this is the only information you need about them. Um, but in this 1932 account, Barry basically was clearly irked. She wrote a letter to Frank Gallagher giving a short account of the Hammond. Now, ostensibly, she wrote it to correct the detail about which door Brewer had left, uh, had exited when he you know, left the building and ran up the lane. Um, but, and, and, you know, and Gallagher published it. Um, but how she, she talks about the events and her own involvement then, is just, you just wouldn't even hardly know it was the same person. I mean, it was certainly the, 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 a sign of the times that Barry, when she was writing then, crafted her account very carefully as a tribute to, to Brewer's martyrdom and the spirited, defiant woman that, that, that wrote those letters uh, was just barely visible. There's no mention of refusal to be evacuated by the men or filling sandbags or anything else. It was all about making Brewer tea, right? So it was just completely different. And this pattern continues. When she was approached by the Bureau of Military History, they asked her for two accounts. They asked her for one about Kevin Barry, uh, and they asked her for another one about her, herself. And despite the best efforts of Jane Kassan, who was the woman who was taking the statements from the women, she never gave the second statement about herself. And the, you know, the Hamlin was mentioned very briefly in the one she did submit about Kevin, but it's mostly, it's mostly to do with her brother, and it contains an apology for mentioning herself at all. Right, she said she's put too much of herself in it, as it was. Um, now, apparently she attended to, uh, to write her own history of the Civil War, but she never did, and she didn't apply for a military service pension. Um, though she did continue to intervene where she felt uh, you know, that, that the circumstances through his death had been misrepresented. Um, and it's important to remember that commemorations, I suppose it's kind of a cliche, I guess, to be that, uh, of the revolutionary period of the Civil War, where it became kind of political battlegrounds. Um, and there were you know, all sorts of rival claims to the legacy of, of the independence period generally, you know, both between pro and anti-treatyites, but also within different factions within uh, the anti-treaty uh, uh, section, I guess. Um, and so the, and the site where Brewer died became a kind of lieu de memoir. And it was, you know, there was loads of, you know, it was a regular meeting point for Republicans and radicals in the 1920s and the, in the 30s. And in 1932, Fianna Fáil uh, named the street near where Brewer died after him. Uh, and this was something that pro treatyites had resisted. Four minutes, God. Okay. Um, but by the 30th anniversary of, of his death in, in 1952, um, basically Fianna Fáil's brand of anti-treaty republicanism had become basically state orthodoxy. And, and the battle of ownership for, for uh, Brewer's legacy was basically between Fianna Fáil and those Republicans uh, who stayed in the IRA afterwards. And, so, and, and then and it was, it, uh, I think it was the second term as Minister for Defence, Oscar Trainer uh, had Portobello Barracks, uh, re-Christian Cattle Brewer Barracks. Um, and for hardcore Republicans, this was a, just a travesty. Um, now, the version of events of his death, of Brewer's death, that was most favored by Irredentist was that he had run at free state troops, um, firing his pistol and shouting, no surrender. 
right? And this is what the this is what the three women were there saying. And Barry says this in her letter in in 1923 too. Um, but and so and so the women's involvement became kind of linked to that strain of republicanism. Members, but members of of Brewer's family, by contrast, were keen to distance themselves from from this narrative, especially Rory Brewer's son, who had actually joined the IRA at 16 and was interned in the 1940s, but later became dis disillusioned and joined Fianna Fáil. He actually married uh, uh, married uh, the the daughter of Muriel McSweeney. Um, uh, who had also been at the Hammond, but they were very estranged. Um, and so, and so, and it was the Brewer's family preferences that began to take precedent uh, from the 1960s. So in April 1966, Floria Donahue gave a paper about Brewer, it was published in the papers, it, the, and it says the witnesses on the spot all agreed that Brewer did not fire on free state troops as he ran up the lane, and no mention was made of the women at all. Um, and Rory, Rory Brewer writes to him and says, this is, I'm very pleased with that account. Um, the, Kathy Berry was less pleased. She wrote two letters, one that she sent and one that she didn't. Uh, one, one to the paper that she didn't send, one to Florio Donahue. Um, and, and so he went and he says he'll come and interview her. If he did interview her again, we don't know what happened. He certainly didn't change it. Um, and so what happened then on... Was by the time you get to the 50th anniversary of Brewer's death in 1972, there's a decision by a, a Cahill Brewer 50th anniversary commemoration committee that they were going to organize a commemorative, a biographical pageant of Brewer's honor to take place at the Olympia Theatre on the 9th of July. And the, the, the production itself was two hours of unadulterated militaristic patriotism. patriotism. Brewer was played by his namesake, the Fianna Fáil Minister of Defence, arranged for a loan of the vicar's machine gun, as well as rifles and revolvers, the wolf tones sang, um, there was traditional music and Irish dancing and historical photographs of the national anthem, uh, and there were three, the three common women were there, but they were kind of silent, uh, they, you know, because there was no dialogue, there was kind of, it was kind of, you know, there was a voiceover over the action, and when the devising the scenario of the director had been advised by Skelly, Thomas O'Doherty, and Florio Donoghue, with the result that it was Florio Donahue's text that was read out over it, and it was later turned into a commemorative pamphlet. And so, of course, by this time, the, you know, the wider political context had changed dramatically in terms of fatality. It was the worst year of the, the Northern Troubles. Common Amon still exists, you know, a Common Amon organization existed, but women could join the IRA now. Um, and both, both Deb Lair and, and, and the T-shirt Jack Lynch were invited to attend, but, but it became very controversial because Republicans old and new basically saw it as an opportunity to challenge their claim on, on Brewer's legacy. So letters started to appear in the, in the weeks beforehand, um, you know, saying that Fianna Fáil had no right to dishonor Brewer, uh, who, who, because who had died in O'Connell Street with two guns, guns blazing in his, uh, in his hands and the cry of no surrender on his lips. Halfway through the performance, uh, a, a, a 1916 veteran um, in his 90s stood up and started berating Union Jack Lynch um, for refusing to give hunger-striking IRA members political status. Sinn Féin was outside on a protest handing out leaflets saying, no surrender. You know, if, if Cal Brew was here today, he'd be on our side. Uh, Devonair left early through a side door. You know, there was, there was rumours uh, that, that a bomb had been left in a, in a, at the stage door. It, it, apparently, it wasn't. You know, by this stage, 
uh, Cairns that very were both dead. Uh, McSweeney was alive but estranged from her family. And so what's happened is now that O'Doherty's um, account of Brewer's death, which excludes women entirely, has become kind of orthodox here. Stephen Brian, Murph, Brian P. Murphy in, in 2008 basically using it as a reference for what happened. Um, and so what I think that showing, basically the tracing the involvement of the women through the, uh, through the Hammam over the years, I think that it shows the importance of getting back, as I was saying, to where it started to the primary source record. Because you know what, you can look, there's stuff in the, the, the MSPs, there's stuff in, in the, you know, useful information in the VMH. You know, in MSPs you get the names of people who are there, and you don't really see how much you're missing until you read the, the original letters, you know, and so that the individuals who, you know, and, and that, that were involved, they're kind of gone, you know, that the individual accounts, especially in these public commemorations. Um, and so that's, okay, so I was going to say something about David, but uh, I won't now because I'm, I'm over time as it is. <laughs> okay, I'll say one thing. So, okay, I'm going to show you just in terms of changing context, what David said about, say, said about the Bureau of Military History in 1977 and in 2011. Now, I'm, this is not, I'm not, and so, so in, this is, the first one was in reference to, um, to, to Michael Brennan's witness statement, which he describes as a vital source for history, and then he's, by 2011, it's the ubiquity of serious factual errors and self-justifying distortion. <laughs> Much now, which one is right? Okay? <laughs> Actually, they're both valid. You know, David's a very good historian. Very good historian. <laughs> but, you know, but, but, the, but, and, and, but now that, for instance, the, that, that the witness statements have all been released, for instance, you get, you get uh, a much better, you know, a wider sense of what was going on. And, for instance, Michael Brennan completely leaves out an ex-soldier named Joseph Clancy who had received uh, a you know, distinguished um, conflict medal in, the, medal in the Great War, and by all accounts, he played a vital role in organizing the East Clare. He's almost completely left out, so that I, I reckon that Brennan's statement is both a vital source, but it's one that also uh, contains a fair share of self-justifying distortion <laughs> as well. And my point is, is that one does not necessarily mitigate the other. It depends on what you want to know and how you use it. And then finally, uh, I'd like to welcome Dr. Connor Marcy. Uh, Connor completed his PhD in Trinity College Dublin in 2014 and subsequently returned as an IRC postdoc fellow. Uh, he is currently a departmental lecturer in Irish history in Hartford College in Oxford. And his first book, Protestant Nationalists in Ireland, 1900 to 1923, is forthcoming with Cambridge University Press. And the title of his paper is Protestant Nationalists and the Spectre of Sectarianism. Thank you, Daniel. Um, can I just add my name to the chorus of thanks to Fanula and Kieran for organising everything today? Um, David Fitzpatrick supervised my PhD thesis, so it's a lovely thing to be able to say here in public. Um, but to thank him for his kindness, uh, his generosity, and his patience um, throughout the four years. Um, I'll never forget some of his marginal comments in the notes when you're, when you're handing in drafts. Once, early in my first year, I was naive enough to describe or misdescribe the young Sean O'Casey as poverty-stricken. David crisply wrote, O'Casey is exaggerating, 
and so are you. <laughs> um, okay, so um, I'd like to start um, by a quote from the unpublished memoirs of the Reverend William Bandeleur, a Church of Ireland clergyman and a strong nationalist sympathiser. He recalled one curious incident that happened in County Wexford at the height of the Civil War. So this is a quote. The Catholic Church threw its weight on the side of the Cosgrave party. There were among its members those who favoured a republic, and some of these men were quite definitely anti-clerical and resented the leaning of the bishops. This feeling took a strange form sometimes. Once, when a group of republicans called on a country rector in the town of Ferns, they inquired on what terms they could be admitted to the Church of Ireland. The purpose of this short paper is not to discuss the very limited Catholic to Protestant side switching that did occur during this period, but instead to say something about another theme suggested by Bandler's recollection. How did religion and politics intersect during this period? I'm going to approach this by means of a discussion of Protestant advanced nationalists, and in particular, I'm going to discuss the manner in which they reacted to allegations of sectarian-inspired attacks against their co-religionists during 1920-1922. I'm not seeking to adjudicate on the existence of sectarianism, but just to highlight how they responded, or in so many cases, refused to respond to these allegations. So to date, or in my research, I've investigated the careers of 500 Protestant activists and their interactions with 14 advanced nationalist organisations from the outbreak of the Boer War until the end of the Irish Civil War. Protestant nationalists had a striking tendency to form self-perpetuating networks of activists where individuals bound by ties of family and intense friendship forged alliances that allowed them to repudiate the views of their unionist co-religionists. They were a vibrant counterculture that frequently acted collectively to undermine the appearance of Protestant political unanimity. I don't have time to discuss the complex motivations that underlay this behaviour, however I want to highlight one major theme. The increase in Protestant nationalist activism from the late 1880s was in many ways a response to the growth of the Catholic middle class, a sense that the nationalist movement would prevail and that Protestants should play a leading role within it. By 1912, disappointment at the lack of Protestants declaring themselves in favour of independence or self-government prompted a number of them to make apocalyptic, if vaguely formulated, warnings about what the future would hold if members of their community did not change their views and fast. Initially, many of these warnings were made by the Protestant home rulers. Joseph Johnson, the author of the 1913 pamphlet Civil War in Ulster, probably fits into this category, as does comments um, by the Reverend Bolton Waller, an ecumenist and latterly a clergyman, um, who made several impassioned pleas for Southern Protestant unity and side-switching towards nationalists. Another example comes from Wilbraham, Wilbraham Fitzjohn Trench, TCD professor of English literature, um, who in 1919 published a pamphlet which stated that self-destruction will arise if Protestants refuse to convert to nationalism, without which, I quote, Protestantism in Ireland is doomed. Advanced nationalists propagandised on similar lines, particularly by 1919-1920. Um, George Irvin, a Fermanagh-born Anglican, a 1916 veteran, um, adopted something of a dual character during this period. Um, to his mainly Catholic colleagues and the volunteers, he was a distant, unassuming figure who never mentioned his background. But within the Church of Ireland, he was an iconoclast who sought rupture with the past, and he was probably the, the, the main Protestant Republican figure who spoke 
in public directly to the bishops and told them to change, to act to change um, and to bring their, their congregations towards nationalism. In 1920, he issued a stern warning um, to members of the Church of Ireland entitled, Will the Church of Ireland Disappear? He stated, A God-sent move of freedom is sweeping over the earth, and it's surely approaching our own shores. How is the Church of Ireland preparing to receive it? There's no use shrugging one's shoulders and say, England will never allow it, or prating smugly and falsely of the Church that has served Ireland faithfully for centuries. In every way it is proclaimed that those who are loyal to Ireland cannot be loyal members of the Church of Ireland. And then in all capitals, Ireland is going to be free. Don't stick your heads in the sand, but face the question, what will happen to the Church of Ireland then? Although, as I've said, these warnings were vaguely formulated, it's quite clear that these men were not prospecting mass, a, a, a mass outbreak of violence, but rather a slower process of marginalisation, emigration or conversion to Catholicism of the younger members and eventually extinction. But with Protestant nationalists clearly concerned about what would befall their churches, it might be useful to examine how they reacted to some of the events of the next two years. Um, as in every fight for independence, the detection and neutralisation of spies and traitors was paramount. Southern Irish Protestants, the vast majority of whom were loyalists, became the focus of unwanted IRA attention. Between 1911 and 1926, as we all well know, the Protestant population of what became the Free State fell by almost a third, although recent research by scholars including David Fitzpatrick finds no evidence of an organised pogrom against Southern Irish Protestants, few dispute that the strong IRA presence in the country proved uncongenial enough to persuade a minority to leave. I'm sorry. Um, I want to talk about Dunmanway quickly, or I want to talk about Dunmanway in general. Um, the killings of in Dunmanway, coming in the context in particular of continual attacks on Belfast Catholics, were assumed by many at the time as being sectarian in nature. Um, speaking in the Dáil on behalf of the Provisional Government, Arthur Griffith denounced the killings. He said, The terrible murders at Dunmanway required the exercise of the utmost strength and authority of Dáil Éireann. The Dáil will uphold to the fullest extent the protection of life and property of all classes and sections of the community. It does not know and cannot know as a national government any distinction of class or creed. In its name, I express the horror of the Irish nation at the Dunmanway murders. A few weeks later, Young Ireland struck a different note. Only the mentally deformed, it wrote, could believe the killings showed Protestant liberties to be under threat. They are outrageous which all recognise as sullying the fair name of the nation and putting a strain on the hitherto unblemished record in the South for tolerance and goodwill. Um, by, the by the majority towards the Protestant minority. One sometimes lesser known um, response to Dunmanway was the Protestant Convention, which met in Dublin um, in May 1922. The convention has received little attention, nor have its precursors. I've counted at least 30, which were parochial, urban, and diocesan um, Protestant assemblies that have hired their that, that proclaimed their abhorrence at sectarian attacks in the north, their belief in the tolerance of their Catholic neighbours, and in which they sought to affirm their place in the country more generally. The convention was organised by leading Southern Protestant um, businessmen and included five rather tepid nationalists out of its 29-strong organising committee. Um, but there was one major dissenting voice, and that's A.E. George Russell. He declined to attend, and his letter of explanation was read to delegates. He could not, he said, without deep feelings of shame and pain, take part, for he would be expected to repudiate fears he did not feel and deny persecution he had never experienced 
all lest a group of fanatics in Belfast calling themselves my co-religionists should seem to implicate the Protestants who live in Southern Ireland in their actions and sentiments. Benson and Dunmanway, as they were then understood, posed particularly difficult posed particular difficulties for Protestant nationalists. Indeed, they almost never conceded that sectarian persecution took place, but instead argued that it was the loyalist politics of most Southern Protestants rather than their faith which placed them in danger. These comments, again by the Reverend Vandeleur, are typical, and I could have cited Albania, Broderick, or Elizabeth Blackson otherwise. Those who were supposed to be in any sense agents of the British government had a very difficult time. One suspected agent was murdered and there was always the risk of ill-treatment. There was no underlined religious persecution. Houses might be raided and there was always the risk of undisciplined youth setting off guns, but no persecution existed on religious grounds. This perspective can also be seen at structural level. By 1922, Common Gaelic and or the Irish Guild of the Church, had come to operate as the leading Protestant nationalist body in, in Ireland or in Dublin. It had about 100 members. Um, the body had its origins in a committee of Protestant Gaelic leaguers founded in 1907 by four Dublin-based uh, Protestant IRB men, Sean O'Casey, Ernest Blythe, Seamus Deacon and George Irvin, and they were essentially trying to use cultural revival to stimulate interest in political nationalism among members of the Church of Ireland. At the Guild's annual meeting in 1918, George Irvin moved to rescind the organisation's declaration of loyalty to the Crown. Irvin moved a resolution which stated that the Guild expresses no opinion whatever in regard to relations that exist between Ireland and Britain. The apolitical nature of this motion was undermined by his proud display of a Republican badge while addressing the meeting. Um, the end result of this was that the bishops deserted the, the Irish Guild of the Church and figures who had been blackballed like Albini, Roderick and Kathleen Lynn were immediately elected. And one um, contemporary describes the scene. The ultra-loyal element present at the meeting were absolutely dumbfounded at the course which events had taken. It would be impossible to give an adequate idea of the appearance of the Bishop of Killaloo, but the poor man seemed to think he had strayed into a Sinn Féin club. <laughs> And the attitude taken by the Guild and its newspaper, the Gaelic Churchman, towards the killings was instructive. The Gaelic Churchman, which was edited by Nelly O'Brien, operated in effect as a Protestant nationalist parish newsletter. Um, the Gaelic Churchman maintained an almost total silence on all allegations of sectarianism against Southern Protestants. This is in stark contrast with the Irish Unionist Alliance's Notes for Ireland, memorably described by David Fitzpatrick as studded with self-pitying reports from abandoned provincial unionists. Furthermore, the very complete re records of the Guild itself are silent on sectarianism. Um, in its otherwise approving report of the Protestant Convention, the Gaelic Churchman regretted that one or two speakers dwelt rather much on the recent killings in Cork. But Mr. James Douglas, a prominent home ruler, had quite plainly the sympathy of the meeting with him when he said that the denunciation of such outrages should be left to the Roman Catholic community as they had condemned them, and that our duty was to condemn the intolerance and outrages in the North. So what was essentially happening was Protestant Republicans were uncomfortable criticising their Catholic fellow nationalists, and they were unwilling to risk jeopardising efforts to build cross, a cross-religious movement by highlighting supposed sectarian incidents. The typical attitude was that Catholic nationalists should react to attacks on Protestants, and Protestant nationalists should decry attacks on Catholics. In Rathmines, Kathleen Lynn chose to disbelieve the news reports, recording six Protestants killed in County Cork, 
shortly a Jean provocateur. These events clearly played in her mind, for she returned to the theme four days later, having sought reassurance in the matter. No, do, no doubt at all, re-court murders, agent provocateur. The Irish view of the Church's complacent attitude towards the killings of their co-religionists co in the South should be contrasted with their views on the contemporaneous attacks on Belfast Catholics, about which they were extremely exercised. The guild developed something of an obsession with the violence that was happening in the North. They frequently denounced the attacks and set up a fund for workers expelled from the shipyards. Kathleen Lynn's response to the attacks mirrored that of the guild. She recorded, Slaughter in Belfast goes, goes on daily. How long, how terrible. She spoke of the attacks as extermination and accused Britain of organising it, just as she had the Dunmanway killings. State of affairs seems almost hopeless for our Roman Catholics, and it's all engineered by England. The view that England was responsible for fostering sectarianism as part of a divide and rule policy was common. Roger Casey's correspondence is all over that in 1912 to 1914. And the Gaelic churchman wrote, sectarianism has been sedulously fostered by British rule and British influence, which is always aimed at keeping Ireland weak and divided in order to dominate her more easily. Indeed, Protestant nationalists began to develop a strangely ambivalent attitude to, 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 to violence in general. On meeting Sidney Caesar, Kathleen Lynn recorded her saying, Unionists all want to leave. Most would be no loss. Um, and others preferred to deny accusation of attacks altogether. One such figure was the Honourable Albinia Broderick, a.k.a. Governor Ruder, the nursing leader, cooperative pioneer, language activist, Republican and sister of the Southern Unionist leader, Lord Middleton. Albania sought to enlist, enlist her co-religionists in a letter-writing campaign in response to the stream of accounts appearing in the British class press claiming IRA violence against Protestants. Incidentally, she, living in County Kerry, is the only figure that I've discussed today who is actually living outside of Dublin or Belfast. So the, the provincial um, um, attitude is rarely seen, a perspective is rarely seen. Rosamond Jacob received from Albania a hot letter blasting Southern Protestants in general because they don't speak up and say they're not prosecuted. As so often happened with Albania, nothing happened, nothing came of her proposal. No one was ever quite as committed as she was. So what then, just to conclude, does this say about um, Protestant nationalist perspective on religion and political allegiance? Um, for one thing, it underlines the precariousness or fragility of the Protestant nationalist, um, of Protestant nationalists in time of revolution. The recurrent intonation of the Catholic, Protestant and dissenter tag could not conceal the fact that the nationalist movement was changing quickly or had changed fast. The intimate, often elite, cultural and literary nationalist networks which proved conducive to Protestant activism were becoming far less important. Second of all, the question of whether Southern Protestants faced persecution qua Protestants or qua Unionists was deeply contentious in the 1920s as it is to this day. Irish Protestant nationalists who'd already detached themselves from the vast majority of their co-religionists were not particularly qualified to assess the nature of ill treatment of minorities by Republicans. They were, and had been for many decades, a subgroup, a counterculture, which shared a religious faith, but not a political outlook with their fellow Protestants. Thank you very much.